And welcome back to your favorite podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is a very special fear of God. For all of your fear of God needs, from merchandise to episode archives, be sure to visit us on the web at thefearofgodpodcast.com. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and though typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey, today instead I am joined once more by a recent friend of the fog. Our first conversation, which released back in January, is the capstone to the fear of God's what scares us and what saves us year-long series, was deeply meaningful to me, and I'd wager to many of you as well. Be sure to check that episode out for a powerful discussion of a few key topics critical to faithful living in these days. I'm sure our time today will be no different as we plumb the depths of what scares us most in the world of Christian faith many of us inhabit. So that in staring at these things, in turning on the lights, perhaps in being light itself, we may find what saves us. More than that, pick up any of his books. I personally can vouch for and encourage you to read Changing Our Minds, Still Christian, After Evangelicalism, and today's featured work, Introducing Christian Ethics. But without further ado, please, friends and foggers, welcome back to the show, author, pastor, professor, and ethicist, Reverend Dr. David P. Gushy. Dr. Gushy, welcome back. Thank you, Nathan. It's good to be with you and with all who are going to listen in on this conversation. I agree. Thank you so much. It's really funny. You'll appreciate this. Last time after our last conversation, once it released, uh, so here in Charlotte, uh, our family uh, quite irregularly, but uh, we still give and when time permits are present at a local Episcopal church. And um I sent, I'm, I'm buddies with the rector there, and he actually was on an episode with us uh, covering the Netflix show Midnight Mass recently, but um, I sent him our conversation, mine and yours, uh, from January, and he was like, oh, Dr. Gushy, huh? I said, yeah, you you familiar? He attended Mercer at, uh, as undergrad, and around uh, about the time you were getting there, so he was quite familiar, and uh, it was a really fun connection to make there. Small um, world, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to wade into some deep waters uh, because you just can't help it these days. Before we do that, um, I thought we'd break the ice a bit uh, once more with with our token segment, that of the Whatcha. So, Dr. Gushy, it is that time where we share a little bit of what we've been reading or watching or listening to that's perhaps outside of our, our typical lane, respectively, uh, but doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, is there anything specific that you want to share that you've been kind of absorbing and soaking in? Uh, how about this? Um, about 15, 20 years ago, there was a show called Gilmore Girls. <laughs> and, um, uh, 
This is a curveball. Yes, proceed. See that? Yes. So, uh, you know, single mom and her daughter uh, in a Connecticut village. And I used to watch it with my daughter, Marie. Uh So uh, now here, 15-ish years later, we're watching it again. Um, So Marie... (laughs) <laughs> and my wife, Jean, and I usually curl up most nights on the couch and, and work our way back through Gilmore Girls. So w- what you're watching, we're watching Gilmore Girls. I think That's it was awesome. season three, episode five last night, uh, in which <laughs> Lorelai has an awful date with a newcomer played by John Hamm. Um, All right. Uh, and I think it would have would have been one of his very first performances before he became a big star on um, Mad Men. So. Wow. So there's your curveball right there. Gilmore Girls circa 2003, all kinds of old cultural references and music references and so on are constantly thrown in. And it makes me feel extraordinarily old. And the time <laughs> the time passing for sure. 20 years seems anciently long ago when you when uh, you listen to those cultural references and such. So that is decidedly unexpected, uh, but appreciated. Gilmore Girls actually has been a topic of a little bit of consternation in the Rouse house because probably about six months ago, my mother, who I, I, I love dearly, but will occasionally want to introduce my kids to things my overprotective dad self might think they're not quite ready for. And Gilmore Girls was one of those. And so, you know, I don't know if if you were like this as a parent, uh, but, you know, you, you, you want to loosen the reins a little bit, but then you overhear it in the other room and they're talking about sex rather openly and like, okay, okay, that's enough. No, we're not doing Gilmore Girls right now. We're, we're going to wait a little while. <laughs> So, yes, Gilmore Girls has definitely been a topic of conversation in our home before. And right now I'm the bad dad who has has put some boundaries on it, though I mean, their constant desire for things to watch. I'm probably going to break sometime in the not too distant future, um, though. It's really fun hearing that that's I, I love it because I came with less light. Uh, and you came with light, but I did, and you'll appreciate this because you do reference it in uh, the at least the primary text we're discussing today. I did just on a beach trip uh, plow through, or rather it plowed through me, uh, Kristen Demay's Jesus and John Wayne, finally. Yeah. Um, that's a... <laughs> that's a sad text <laughs> i mean it's a it's an important text but it's a sad text it is both yeah well thank you for sharing that and we will probably revisit or at least name drop that book again some in this conversation that has been an, another installment of the whatcha so dr gushy we alluded last time to the upcoming release which was relatively imminent at that moment of the the most recent book from you introducing christian ethics core convictions for christians today but it hadn't formally entered the world now it's out and i'm curious to hear a little bit of what informed kind of uh, putting this out in the world because it's a bit of a spiritual sequel to i think the 2003 release of kingdom ethics with glenn stassen and correct me if i'm wrong on any of this but um, you know, feel, feels like a, a reset a little bit for perhaps your work or for perhaps the, the notion of modern Christian ethics period. And so can you speak a little bit to just what prompted that, what urged you to, to, to feel the desire to put that out in the wild? 
Sure. Um, Kingdom Ethics was uh, a joint project of my main teacher, Glenn Stassen, and myself. <clears throat> we worked on it beginning in the mid-90s and published it. It took a long time, but it came out in 2003 uh, with InterVarsity. The book uh, really has sold well, um, gone all over the world, 12 languages translated, so on. Glenn died in 2014, and uh, before he died, just barely before he died, we were talking about a revision being needed, mm -hmm. and the revision I mainly had to do myself because he died in 2014. He helped with the ideas, but so the revision of Kingdom Ethics came out in 2016, uh, and it came out with Erdman's because... By 2016, I was controversial enough that InterVarsity Press wouldn't publish Kingdom Ethics. So now it's six years later. And as I was preparing to teach a Christian Ethics intro class one more time, I, and I looked at the time, I don't think it's actually going to turn out this way now, but it looked at the time like it might be my last seminary ethics intro class. Mm -hmm. um, I felt more of a need to to reformulate, as you say, to reset my intro uh, lectures on Christian ethics. Kingdom Ethics, I think, is still a great book, but it was a joint book that was begun almost 30 years ago. And I don't know, something about being in my, at this stage of my career with my mentor gone, and now what does my voice at this stage want to say? Mm -hmm. And and so, so it is. It is um, an intro to Christian ethics. I think it complements Kingdom Ethics nicely. It often draws on Kingdom Ethics, but it is a reset with my own freshest thoughts on the whole field of Christian ethics. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's funny because it it received this as compliment. Uh, it it kind of reads as textbook light. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. it's got some heft. It's got some weight to it, despite still. In its, uh, you know, the, the individual chapters are, are kind of nugget form, uh, you know, to kind of build on an overarching concept. No, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And and I would wager, even you, the person, much less you, the ethicist, you know, thirty years is a long time to observe the life of a church, the life of a country, the life of you know these ideas, and and how it's it's conceptually even the idea of ethics understand the nuance I use this word with evolving over time is an interesting thing. It's uh, true. It's true. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm looking at the book. Um, it looks thinner than kingdom ethics and it is somewhat, but it's a hundred thousand words. It's a yeah. big old honking book in itself, but it, I, I, I wanted um, to write a book that was a little more accessible to regular church folks and undergrads and also people from other countries because my work has gone international more on, in these last years. So uh, I would say I was aiming for accessibility, uh, clarity, uh, global reach, and uh, maybe to some extent, therefore, a bit more parsimony and simplicity in how I make arguments. I want to frame and, and maybe in the future, I'll bust out of this uh, kind of perhaps didactic approach, uh, but wanted to frame our conversation a little bit around, if I'm being perfectly frank, issues that are 
important and interesting to me as I see the world around me. Um, and so we'll frame this around three sort of um, big ideas, but one that I'm not addressing that you or that I, I don't necessarily want to spend a ton of time with today, though, want to at least pat you on the back in your section on creation care, you have one of the most, um, you know, in the world of media, we talk about a genre, which is to say, you know, it's maybe it's horror, maybe it's sci-fi, maybe it's thriller, maybe it's, you know, it's not traditional Ooh. drama. And you've got one of uh, your most genre infused sentences in your creation care. In fact, I read it to my wife and she was like, what? I said, bright. And that particular line is loving neighbors requires loving those who are strangers to us, not just in location, but also in time. I don't know if you felt uh, prickles on your neck when you wrote that line, <laughs> but uh, I definitely uh, felt them in a profound way in reading it. Yeah. Creation. Thanks, Nathan. Uh, yeah. You know, creation care, the reason it's hard partly is because like on climate change, even though now we're beginning to feel the effects of climate change, the most catastrophic effects are projected for 2075 or 2100 or 2150. Mm -hmm. And it is hard for people to care about what's happening around them right at this moment. So to get people to care about neighbors who they haven't met yet. Right. In a world that doesn't, that isn't here yet is it really pushes human capacity. You know, for me having grandchildren now who are seven and four, they will live in, in God willing, they will live in this world that we will leave behind a four-year-old in the year 2022 will be 54 in the year 2072. So so it gets a little bit more real when you have grandchildren. It's easier to think about what world we'll be leaving to Melody and Jonah when they are in their 50s and it's the 2070s. But one, uh, there was an author who wrote a book. Who, who the, the name of the book was Loving Neighbors Across Time. Mm. Um, these are our neighbors, too. They're just not here yet. I mean, we could kind of end right there, but but it's worth pressing forward. Uh, I mean, I just love yeah. that concept and and pray that you know, that idea can start to take hold. You know, I really, I really wasn't setting out to start with where I want to start. Um, but the more I kept wrestling with the direction of our conversation, the harder it became to ignore this idea, which isn't even explicitly an idea. I, there's no chapter in your book on this. It's more a guiding principle. And if you haven't noticed, I'm a big fan of quotes and because I read Jesus and John Wayne in relative proximity to introducing Christian ethics, what I saw here was the big paired with the little, right? Jesus and John Wayne is this historical treatise on, I think she starts in the 50s or so, but but even has tendrils further back, whereas Christian ethics is about your day-to-day -day choices and in a, in a at least in a granular way. And mm -hmm. two, two quotes that really sing to me in my daily life, unrelated to those books, except in theme, one is uh, the Anne of Green Gables quote, if there's any Anne fans in the house, it's all things big are wrapped up with all things little, mm -hmm. uh, is, a, is a very powerful quote and guiding idea to me. And the second is from Richard Rohr. And he says, the best criticism of the bad is the doing of the better. Letting those kind of ideas umbrella at least this section of time, this is really a bigger topic than we have time for. And I understand that, but the more I consider this scares saves dynamic, 
this kept jumping out at me. And that's, I don't know, a more flowery or sexy way to put it, but scriptural interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that weighs heavy on me. I, 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 while I'm not in a pastoral vocational setting, I do interact with a lot of people who attend church. I'll frame it that way, who don't really love kind of my take on the world, but kind of can't refute it on a certain level, except to say, well, that's not what the Bible says, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, this is a dumb argument and we're not getting anywhere, but I'm, I am going to cite you here. Uh, you spend a lot of time in the new text um, or the most recent text talking about Howard Thurman. And one of the most powerful quotes to me, and I actually shared this on social media the other day, it's liberation theology includes the critique that much of Christianity as it has evolved stands directly against the liberative teachings and spirit of Jesus himself. This means that if one wants to follow Jesus, one must oppose much of organized Christianity. And it's my propensity to prattle, but I feel like grounding these notions in anecdotes, and we have a an elder family member uh, attached to our home um, who I've kind of bumped up against over the years um, due to just serious differences in theological understanding. And and this person is not unique in that, but because of the specificity of my relationship there, it carries heavier weight. And this person and other people in the world will often talk about, hey, just attend a church that preaches the Bible. Yeah. And somehow that version of preaching to them is, is just utterly divorced from social location. It's completely unbiased. But you have these massive topics, LGBTQ inclusion, egalitarian gender dynamics, uh, historical value of chattel slavery, which I've startlingly seen defense for from certain quarters, not whom I'm referring to specifically, being propped up as quote unquote biblical. So I here's what's hard. And this is where I get sort of charged, Dr. Gushy. And that is so I'm an Enneagram four. I'm a middle kid. I'm a theater guy. Like my my trend is nonconformity. It's it's let's find the different angle. There's there's a better way to see or do or be whatever that might be what can feel challenging sometimes is everyone thinks they're the maverick right everyone thinks well you know it's it's either i'm a maverick and and i'm doing it egregiously sort of i might say wrong they wouldn't or we'll just be biblical and you're not biblical thus you're out kind of thing so I want to engage this idea, and I'm going to try to sus- make this more succinct than I have. Um, how do we hold scripture faithfully, even if others use it in ways that on its face may seem the interpretation of least resistance? What I mean by that interpretation of least resistance? Well, Paul says gays are bad. So, you know, gays are bad, Nathan. Don't be dumb. It's right there in plain mm-hmm. text. So how do we hold that tension, but still pursue a fully orbed view of people in the world that seems to be more Christ-like than what most would call biblical. I'm going to stop talking and let you respond a little bit. Well, those of us who have spent a lot of time in fundamentalism or evangelicalism all are wrestling with this question, Mm. Uh, especially those of us who have come to conclude that the sometimes called biblicist or God said it, I believe it, that settles it kinds of, kind of, um, supposed simplicity just doesn't really work. And I think that's not a bad way to frame it. Sometimes being quote unquote biblical doesn't seem to fit with being Christ-like. So what's going on there 
and it's not easy to get to the point where one feels free enough to say this, but I have, uh, finally for me, is that the Bible should be understood as a uniquely significant resource for the forming and shaping of Christian disciples, but the goal is the forming and shaping of faithful, Christ-like Christian disciples. It is not a literalist reading of every one of the 31,273 verses in the Protestant Bible. So the Bible exists to help resource and shape Christian discipleship. It should be read to help us do that. If it is being read in a way that actually makes us less Christ-like and less responsive to the example and will and teaching and way of Jesus, then we need to reconsider how we're reading it. I dealt with this a lot in the After Evangelicalism book, and we talked about that, you know, before. By now, in the Introducing Christian Ethics book, that's all kind of included by reference. You know, it's like um, the Bible is going to be read constantly, constantly cited from Genesis to Revelation, constantly reflected upon. It is, there is no source that carries the kind of uh, historic valence and authority that the Bible does. But um, here's, a, here's a way to say it. I used to say that among all the cluster of authorities that Christians um, draw upon, the Bible is at the center, like the sun is at the center of the solar system, right? Now, what I would say is that Jesus is at the center of the solar system, and we're trying yes. to follow him. We're trying to look upon him, obey him, imitate him, be like him, advance his cause. And we read the Bible always with reference to him and in the goal of serving him. And so this may mean sometimes saying, you know, this strand of scripture or this text, or at least this way of interpreting this strand and this text is not helping us be more Christ-like. It's not helping us be faithful in following Jesus. Therefore, it must be read in a different way or it must be subordinated to other texts that are more helpful in leading us to be faithful followers of Jesus. So, for example, the texts that teach us to hate our neighbors and to, and to kill them, including women and children, are not as helpful in, in forming faithful disciples as are the texts where Jesus teaches love of enemies and forgiveness and reconciliation and peacemaking. All texts in scripture need to be considered seriously by followers of Jesus, but also critically with the aim of discipleship. Um, so you might say biblicism, sometimes pejoratively called bibliolatry, substitutes the text of scripture for Jesus as the ultimate point of reference. Yeah. Jesus is the ultimate point of reference. Scripture is read to help us follow Jesus. You know, I like quotes and I'm going to, be a real um, uh, uh, self-congratulatory here and quote myself in a couple instances. Okay. And a thing I've thought before and said to someone is at the end, and this is going to sound like um, I have been accused of having a low view of scripture before. I don't know that that's true. I think I have a high view of Jesus. But what I said was at the end of everything, it is not a book that's going to greet me. Right. And those I love, it's going to be him. And so what is the object of my faith? I get it. We can, we can parse out nuance all day long, but you know, that, that really stays in me. And 
And as far as my kind, my kind of guiding use, guiding comprehension of scripture. Uh, and again, sometimes poetry steers into profundity, but I think this might do both is scripture is meant, I think, to, to season a life mm. as, as salt and wine, not to be hurled at those who don't know how to use it as just ingredients, right? Like this thing, that thing, which are, let's be honest, used to harm and to diminish. I really love and, and appreciate that notion uh, because it, it, if I'm honest, it gets tiresome to feel like, well, you know, I don't really know that how you're applying that or how you're reading that quite really does anything other than harm and belittle and demean and dismiss. And if that's your goal, if that's how you view this text, then that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you know um, part of my journey, you know, as a straight white male for the early stages of my Christian journey, the Bible was never used against me. Mm-hmm. It never mm-hmm. was. Um, yep. My basic person was never attacked by quoting scripture. That is that is a nice privilege of being a straight white male. So it took me a while to discover through, through uh, reading and, of course, through knowing people that the Bible has routinely been used to hurt people. Probably for Christians, the original target would, would actually have been Jews who did not believe in Jesus. So anti-Semitism in Christian history would be the first place that I learned to really take this seriously when I was doing my dissertation on the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the diminution of women and the marginalizing of women's gifts. Um, and then, of course, the egregious misuse of the Bible to sanction slavery and then racism and segregation. And then, um, of course, LGBT rejection and, and every kind of indignity against uh, queer people. So, Once you have seen, and then there's others too, like the way the Bible was used to underwrite conquest and attack on the indigenous people as the Canaanites uh, with the colonists being, uh, you know, akin to um, the the people of Israel conquering the Holy Land, Mm -hmm. um, the promised land. So such a long history of abuse of the Bible. Now, one pious way to get around this is to say, well, you know, the problem is with the interpreters, not with the text. I think many times that is true. The problem is the interpreters, not the text. But I've had to, to, just in all honesty, had to admit that there are passages that on their face easily contribute to the denigration and dehumanization that we're talking about. They weren't crazy people who read Romans 1, 26 to 27 in a certain kind of way, you know, against uh, gay people. So there are certain issues with texts. And then there are issues with the interpretation of texts. And what's interesting is when you see people, it's actually tragic. You see people who say, you know, I really would like to get there towards, say, inclusion of gay people, but the Bible won't let me. So I'm just not going to. So therefore, (laughs) I'm I'm going to uh, continue to, to discriminate and harm, you know, that population. In After Evangelicalism, I quote Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor, who basically said, if the Bible itself contributes to dehumanization, then the Bible itself must be read in a different way so that dehumanization is not the result of our reading of the Bible. Amen. Mm. 
And and it, I, we we spent some time on this last go around, so I don't want to camp long at the LGBTQ note. But you're analogizing, and you know, sometimes you just have an idea presented to you, like, oh, that's <clears throat> uh, clearly uh, there and quite revelatory. Why didn't I think of this before? But you're analogizing Gentile inclusion uh, with mm-hmm. modern LGBTQ inclusion. Admittedly, even for someone who has come a long way on that subject was a new idea like oh wow love it let's do that <laughs> here we are um and if i'm perfectly frank and we'll we'll kind of this will be a decent transition into the next topic but if i'm being perfectly frank one father to another um my eldest is uh right now has taken an interest in and is reading the message uh, uh kind of tr- you know, will I don't know how far she'll get, but you know, is kind of trying this approach of just reading it as she goes. And I hate even saying stuff like this out loud, but I'm trying to figure out ways to nuance what she might stumble across because of the voices that I know that are surrounding her life that will reinforce that more perhaps dehumanizing view, uh, if that makes sense. Isn't um, that? I mean, isn't that sad? Really? Like we we would want our children to be reading the Bible. Right. But we want them to read it in a way that makes them better Christians, better people. That isn't always how it is read. And so what I hear you saying as a dad, one dad to another is I, I want you to read the Bible, but I hope you'll talk with me about what you think you're learning as you read. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I don't want you to become a worse person because you're reading the Bible. Isn't that something? <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is something. And yeah. yet here we are. Um, yeah. But that's, that's a really great segue here uh, um, because the, the next sort of big tent pole I sort of wanted to spend some time on here. And, and you, you may sense in our previous conversation, you may sense throughout this, a, a, a sort of immediate under the surface emotionality to some of these topics, because I just, I live with and think about these things often. And so, you know, if I'm perfectly honest, while our car, our talks are for the listeners, they're <laughs> in many ways for me too. Right. Um, but, but, you know, that subject is, is that a fem that a feminism? And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give a, a lengthier quote of yours here in a second, but in the interest of quotes, you, you say it pretty succinctly, uh, with patriarchy is patriarchy in, in the new book, uh, and, and want to spend a minute talking about that. And what scares me sometimes, Dr. Gushy, is as someone who actually is willing and open and receptive and has operated on the side of openness and desire for learning and broadening of horizons and worldview to still feel like there are times where these giant blind spots exist. Now take the person who doesn't operate with an open spirit and heart and mind and how many blind spots just completely crowd out the view. Um, You know, this issue, this idea, this word feminism uh, has is, is kind of a bedrock thing. Uh, as you can imagine in our home, three daughters, heterosexual marriage, wife, you know, we, 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 we try to instill this, uh, you know, pursue you, be you, that you are not at the mercy of. And, and the reason I wanted to start with scriptural interpretation is because I get sick of the cancerous view that diminishes and would diminish. Uh, now, it's personal because it's my own children and I sometimes loathe that it's 
the personal that teaches us the universal, but it's kind of how we live and how mm-hmm. we learn. Um, your, your, and I'll, I'll quote you here again a bit more lengthily, and that's, I believe that girls and women are sacred in God's sight, equal with men, typically different from men in some ways, though this varies dramatically and is always best left to women's self-definition, self-definition, women's self-definition, best left to women's self-definition. It bears repeating over and over. Um, And I'm going to sound about as ignorant as they get when I say there were a lot of ways I thought we were kind of past this, not recently, but my wife and I, before it imploded in spectacular fashion for about seven years, attended a Pentecostal adjacent church. And you even cite this in introducing Christian ethics. Pentecostals on this, at least, tend to get it right, largely, um, uh, compared to their denominational peers, at least. And so we just didn't see it that much. Um, That sort of part chapter of our story ended, gosh, close to a decade ago. And in, insert uh, modern American life uh, coupled with, you know, just what you see in the day-to-day of church abuse and scandal. And I'm thinking of, we've referenced it on the show before, but just this year, the SBC report, just this season of this year, the SBC report mm-hmm. being a, a major, I remember, I remember the castigating that non-catholic peers i knew would level at catholic the catholic institution and i would say you don't know but it's because they're centralized it's because it's to a degree monolithic that the the cracks are more evident but Mm -hmm. not two three four years later you have reports like this most recent one which is again even itself not exhaustive um so between my own sort of personal life i mean this is getting super proximal here but a few months ago my wife ran afoul unintentionally just didn't i was present uh in conversation with someone who i mean exploded at at the notion of feminism as potentially faithful and it it was a very i'm I'm minimizing details here because of it's still traumatizing and and wow and i i you know i doubt that person the the party in question will ever listen to this, but I want to be sensitive there. And so, so in the way I do, I'm prattling on, but the, the staggering notion of the voices who still cry out egalitarians not allowed. And I suppose the question here is why are we, and by we, I mean, specifically men and by we men, I mean, specifically Christian men, so afraid of sharing power with women. I do I can readily comprehend uh, an egalitarian approach. Isn't this panacea for gender-based hurt and trauma. I'm not trying to pretend it is, but in this scares saves dynamic, like it is clear the people, the, the, the litany, the parade in, in Jesus and John Wayne of personalities. What was wild about reading that book is though I'm 42, I'm, I'm, I consider myself young in spirit and you're like, Oh my God, I lived through a lot of this. Like I, I was aware of a lot of these personalities and what I would say to almost a, a, a T of those folks is you are deathly afraid of sharing power with women and, and, mm-hmm. you know, so, so I'll stop and, and sort of trail off as I do to some response from you there. Well, patriarchy goes back very, very, very deep in human history. 
And um, I think you can see the, the struggle in the pages of the New Testament itself, right? It's, mm-hmm. in the, it's, it's in the Old Testament too, but the gobbling up of power by men and then the sanctifying of that gobbling up of power uh, in the name of God, it's one of the oldest dynamics in, in uh, human history. And it is apparent in the scriptures. This is one reason why I can't be an errantist related to the Bible because it, it's present in the scriptural texts consistently. <clears throat> um, I think all honesty, I actually do this in the book. I no longer take the, the evangelical feminist line that says, oh, like the Bible clearly teaches gender egalitarianism and patriarchal notes are aberrational. No, I think it's more honest to say that there's plenty of patriarchalism in the Bible itself, but that the Bible also has a strand of radical egalitarianism that you just see glimpses of in the Hebrew Bible. You see more in Jesus. You see um, dramatic breakthroughs in some of the uh, uh, later New Testament writings. Um, But then you also see retrenchment. I mean, I was taught a dating of the New Testament, for example, that has um, Galatians, the, you know, Galatians 5 in Christ, no, you know, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male, female, happening before 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy retreating to a more of a patriarchal understanding. And it's like early church radicalism kind of gave way to more of an enculturated patriarchy. Hmm. Um, but both leave traces in the New Testament, and we have to sort through those traces. So the biblical issues are not easy because I think you have both strands present. You just simply have to choose to say the strand that is most Christ-like, that is most just, most loving, um, most reconciling, most conducive to human flourishing and to the sacred lives of women is the egalitarian strand. And so I choose that strand, and there's plenty of biblical evidence for it. Um, and when you see the the consequences of patriarchy, um, the damage to women in so many different settings, um, in so many different ways, uh, then you have data to help support that move. Um, is it that men are afraid? I mean, everybody appears to be afraid of giving up power. I also think that the sex abuse issue festers in patriarchal environments. There's something about men holding all the positions of power, whether it's in Catholic churches or in Protestant ones, with women's voices being systematically marginalized, that when men start abusing women and uh, children and all male boards or committees or pastors are the ones who receive the complaints. Uh, It never works. It never works. Women need to be in those rooms. Conversations are different when women are in those rooms, especially when women are leading those rooms. So it's about power. It's about impunity. Um, And what Kristen shows in her book, Jesus and John Wayne, is the toxicity of especially flagrant, especially sexualized patriarchy hypersexualized, like the Mark Driscoll thing that she she, she uh, explores in that book. It is some of the, the most toxic expressions of uh, Christianity, and she nails it. 
Um, it's one reason that book is so deservedly widely read because she tells a story that needs to be told. She herself says that <laughs> that the book is depressing because the evidence is depressing. Yes. But she's a historian. She doesn't, her job is to tell that story and she does it well. My job is to say, let's get past patriarchy and embrace egalitarianism, shared power, equal value, and an overturning of these structures that are so damaging to women. And for that matter, as with all oppression, damaging to oppressors too, because power corrupts. Hmm. Well, Spider-Man teaches us that uh, with great power comes great responsibility. So if we would just learn from Uncle Ben. um, Uncle Ben. (laughs) You know, what I love most, and if I'm perfectly honest, occasionally loathe, is is attempting a simple reading as mm, attempting us the sim the simplest takeaway on a given subject scripturally is just not is rarely conducive to the healthy view right there's there's very few instances where the most reduced takeaway is going to get you the most fruitful result um and that's as awesome as it is infuriating <laughs> well you know um I mean, one way to simplify things a little bit that I try to do in this book is with the Howard Thurman reading from below hermeneutic, right? Mm, Um, How does a reading of scripture look from the perspective of those uh, who he says have their backs against the wall, those who are dispossessed, those who are oppressed and mistreated and abused or systemically disempowered? How does a reading of scripture look from that perspective? And you know, toxic patriarchy certainly does not look very good from the perspective of those who are victimized by it. And their perspectives should be privileged. Um, so that's relatively simple. Um, how, does a, how does a view that somehow defends chattel slavery look from the perspective of slaves or their descendants, you know? How does systemic anti-gay hostility look from the perspective of those who are LGBT and those who love them? I mean, it's not the only thing to be said when one reads scripture, but the perspective from below, the perspective from the oppressed is pretty simple and it is pretty illuminating most of the time. No, I, I love that and appreciate the uh, the nuance to, to uh, my perhaps overly reductive statement. And I will introduce here the word you taught me uh, and that of subaltern. Uh, so, you know, I, I definitely considered using that here, but I will (laughs) let your context just now define it for our listeners. Yes. What does this application look like from below and let that be a helpful guide? Um, in so many ways, it feels like, uh, we could go on and on, on a given topic, but one of the reasons we, or I chose to kind of hold off a little bit because, because you and I've been in communication about your return here for a minute was anticipation of um, the overturning of Roe v. Wade via the Dobbs decision that got handed down a month ago or so, and 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 perhaps a desire to dig a little deeper on that subject. But you know, the two things kept me from diving back into that topic. One is <laughs> your own words from the book when you say, "I have essentially given up." on a legislative solution to the abortion issue. And <laughs> and while my foolish hopefulness wants to encourage you to not give up on that, which is important to you, uh, it's more the second thing that kept me away from that topic in a full way. And it's because of tripping and falling over your chapter 
titled Truthfulness. And goodness, I did not know how much I needed the words in that chapter. And and I'll cite you here again momentarily or, you know, for a moment. And that's idea-wise, you say, when we tell someone something, we are implying just by the very act of speech that we respect them and will tell them the truth. If we speak to them as if we were telling them the truth, we owe them the actual truth. Every conversation between free people who live in dignity involves an implicit covenant to tell the truth. <clears throat> and you you do highlight some interesting uh, uh, practicals to that idea, saying, if we're seeking this, we will clean up our information processes, our systems and content, improve the dependability and trustworthiness of our information. <sighs> Here's one of those uppercuts. We will not listen to inveterate liars. Great word. Even if they tell us things we wish we were true. And at the end of the day, if there are things that keep me up at night as an adult American, it's watching adult American peers be lied to as though it were true. This is me, but my wife can attest to the fact that when we, so our oldest kid is 13, in their youngest days, I, um, have you seen the film Knives Out? It's okay if you haven't. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh -huh. You might or might not recall that the young lady at the center of that film, the, the, um, uh, uh Christopher Plummer's kind of nurse assistant, right. um, when she lies, she vomits. <laughs> which is a, a key element to I, I the, who, the, the whodunit aspect of that movie. Well, I don't do that. You know, it's not that extreme, but I have a very difficult time always have with even fibs to my children to the point of when as their father, I would be in charge of which I still am occasionally with the five-year-old putting them to bed at night. It would be so simple. It would have been so simple, Dr. Gashi, to say, to get them calm and then say, I'll be right back, knowing I'm not coming back. But I couldn't do it. I could not say that line to my kids because I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to come back. So I'll find a way to tell the truth in this moment, or I'm just going to hang with them until they fall asleep, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it seems simple. We even, we, we were that family who attempted to evade, uh, uh, jolly old saint nick a little bit but our uh, kids didn't believe us our kids didn't believe us so it's like okay well whatever you you know the moment's gonna come don't be mad at me kid because you know I, I didn't try to lean hard into this right and to pivot from the sort of funny to the deadly serious <clears throat> much like ignoring the elephant in the room of scriptural interpretation felt impossible so does ignoring this notion in favor of something more intractable like abortion and it's because the whatever we fall down on in terms of, well, does life literally be begin at conception? Does quote unquote life start, you know, 10 weeks later, whatever, like, like that is a worthy conversation, but we've kind of gone through the looking glass resulting in rows overturning because liars lied to us and we didn't care. And I, when I say we, I, technically I don't want to include myself. I am trying to point a finger, but I need to include myself because we kind of decided our ends justified any means. And I cited some of these um, 
when I was in when I was in high school, my AP US history teacher used the phrase hook dates, H-O-O-K, hook dates. And there are these dates in history that a lot of other things orbit. So if you learn this date, you can smoke mm. off of all of those. And mm. I cited some of those metaphorically in our last conversation. Well, Dr. Gushy, a hook date for me is watching the confirmation hearings of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And mm. And, and, I, and it is not my intention to slander a person. It is my intention to speak from observation what I saw, which is, I think this guy's lying and I think she's telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I didn't mean for that to stumble into a whole uh, pointing back to the feminism notion, uh, but but there you have it. And mm-hmm. there's going to be multi prongs, uh, multiple prongs to this sort of launch pad for you here, but what I wrote down is why are we scared of reasoned discourse? Why are we scared of, and this is, this is a much bigger leap. Why are we scared of representative government? What can save us from the lies we've embraced? These are too big. Too, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, let me, um, let me help the listener understand what I tried to do in the truth chapter. Sure. Kingdom Ethics was one of the very few textbooks that actually had a chapter on truth. And when Glenn and I put that together, we did, we concluded that truth was a neglected theme in Christian ethics. Mm. And I think Amen. it was because it was largely taken for granted uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. There was, a, you know, everybody understood that you're supposed to tell the truth and that people who told lies all the time were beyond the pale. Now, in the year 2022, we live in a what has been described as a post-truth environment. And social media has, has dramatically facilitated the spreading of viral lies. So, what I tried to do in this chapter was emphasize three variants on the theme, truth as a reality, what is truth? So I do some philosophical digging there, and I basically say, for most purposes, it's simple enough to say that truth is correspondence with reality. We should say things that correspond with reality. Mm -hmm. Um, Then truthfulness is the virtue of being committed to telling the truth, (laughs) such that telling a lie might make you vomit, right? Uh, It is internal to the self that you will live in truth, that your life will be truthful, that you will tell the truth and that you will keep your promises and um, and have a character that is true or truthful. And the truth-telling is a moral norm for Christians. We are to tell the truth. The chapter also deals with what happens when this isn't the case. When people routinely lie, they corrode their own character, they harm other people, they break the covenant. I'm glad you picked that quote, the covenant of truthfulness when we speak to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and in public life, routine lies corrode the body politic and are deeply associated historically with injustice, tyranny, and violence. We are recording this on the day after the FBI raided Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. We don't have any report from the FBI themselves or the Justice Department as to why it happened, but that hasn't prevented people from beginning to rain down the propaganda related to what happened and why and mm-hmm. uh, the and so on. Sustained lying 
for example, the Justice Department is a corrupt institution that wants to harm everybody who is conservative and therefore should be abolished or its agents should be resisted or harmed. Sustained lying can get people killed. Sustained lying can tear a society apart. So in this sense, truthfulness is a core moral issue as core as your character and mine. What is in our hearts? Are we truthful? As core as our most basic relationships, when we speak to our children, can they count on that we are telling them the truth? The truth as appropriate to their level of maturity. We don't tell them everything we tell them, but what we do tell them is true, right? And it is fundamental to marriage and all sustained friendship and romantic relationships. How many marriages have been broken apart by lies? Um, and it is essential in social ethics that people who lead every institution, governments, business, schools, and so on, are people whose words can be trusted. So I think truth as a moral principle needs much more attention. And I'm glad to have given it a serious look in this book. So like the truth to one's children is daddy's not ready for you to watch all of Gilmore Girls right now. Right. Because, you know, they can understand that. It's, yeah, it's a me um, thing. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not sure that you're ready, or at least I'm not ready. So can you give right. me a little bit more time on this, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, a, a lot of times when we lie in interpersonal, it's because we're embarrassed about something. We lie to save face. Sometimes we lie so that we don't hurt the feelings of somebody else. Do I look good in this dress? You know, huh? Well, you know. You do, Dr. Gesher, you do. You. I, 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 was, I wasn't going to bring it up for the listeners, but I'm impressed you. at your boldness today. That's good. Thank you, Nathan. You know, <laughs> so, so there are reasons why we might fib uh, a, little, a little lie sometimes. But, but in general, the Christian practice is to tell the truth. And I quote some New Testament scriptures they're really interesting. There's one in Ephesians where lying in the community is treated as uh, a big deal like slander or violent speech, that these sins of speech tear apart community. Hmm. And, and so what we say with our mouths matters a lot. And disinformation is the word for sustained political lying. And sustained political lying is disastrous for a society, um, but sustained lying interpersonally is disastrous for any relationship. And there's, and there's a lot of good biblical work in that chapter about God's character as truthful, the church's character as a community of truth, Jesus as the truth, living in truth. So I'm, I'm excited about that chapter. I hope people will look at it pretty closely. Well, yeah. And like I said... For someone who enjoys uh, hot button issues, I was not anticipating, oh, this, you know, uh, as as a signature sort of takeaway. Um, you know, I'm going to malform a question here because it's coming to me in real time and hopefully it won't be overly on the spot, but I, I can't get away this uh, in our home. We are, as I already mentioned, uh, fans of Anne Shirley, she of Green Gables and subsequently Avonlea. And this quote from the original novel that says all things big are wrapped up. Um, yes. All things big are wrapped up with all things little. And it was fascinating reading Jesus and John Wayne again in concert with introducing Christian ethics. Cause you, it's like, I saw that interplay and it can get debilitating wondering why 
it can get exhausting wishing for, but I do think conversations like this, uh, hope definitely for myself, hopefully for our listeners indicate, you know, there are things way too big as we even discussed, uh, on our last conversation, but it is those little spaces, those little places, those little choices, those little decisions that literally are our ethic and mm-hmm. how we walk in that, how we choose to be in that uh, is going to have ripple effects and and it will be smaller, it will be slower and that kind of sucks. Um, but that's kind of kind of the heavy lifting we're called to do, I think. You know, I would Please. just say, yeah. I would just say that there's a chapter on character in the book. And there's an old saying, character is who you are when no one's looking. Mm-hmm. Um, character is the essential kind of moral core of a person. And that moral core of a person is revealed in every small thing that we do every day. And and I, I think that's a great Anna Green Gables. By the way, we liked Anna Green Gables in our family, too. Um, we even we even visited that uh, area mm. up in uh, what is that Nova Scotia or wherever that is. We were there, yeah. Oh, well, Prince Edward Island. Island. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, my daughter and I went there. Um, but but yes, yeah, so the little choices, the daily interactions, the level of kindness we show, our patience when flustered, um, how we deal with our hurt, how we deal with our anger, whether we tell the truth whether we help somebody who is in need, who crosses our path, whether we use our power graciously, whether we stand up for somebody who's being spoken of wrongly, a thousand little daily choices. One reason to get up in the morning and pray and read scripture and so on is to prepare our hearts for the daily moral challenges that will come. Mm -hmm. And it's those little moral challenges that nobody might even remember at the end of the day. You add it up cumulatively our character is both being expressed and formed by those choices. Yes. And so that's, that's sometimes why, you know, a child is caught telling a lie and you have to kind of make a fuss about it. And they say, but dad, it was only a little lie. But the, the next thing to say is, but it's about your character. It's about who you are becoming. Hmm. And, and I, I want you to become a truthful person. Yeah. And I love in all the things that are good and the way they are like this, I love and hate that that's a lifelong journey. I mean, yeah. I'll pat myself on the back here uh, only insofar as understand this can occasionally be the exception to the rule, but the other night. So you, you, something you were saying just a moment ago, called to mind, Mr. Rogers, uh, Fred Rogers, beautiful human. Uh, and uh, also get some, some callback in Jesus and John Wayne. Um, if you haven't seen uh, the Tom Hanks film, uh, it's wonderful. But our five-year-old the other night was, as five-year-olds can be, she'd, she'd kind of gone over the edge in terms of her emotional response to a thing. And my unfortunate tendency can be to just get frustrated, kind of find the shortcut to end this uh, that soothes me, you know, gets gets me past that moment. And it's so funny. I have this inspirational moment because what i thought about was there's a the a line in uh won't you be my neighbor the tom hanks mr rogers film that's there's always a place to put the mad you feel and i i saw that in my kid in that moment i was like she's mad she's 
we adults learn how to stifle this stuff. We learn how to, to navigate it internally or don't. And that's problematic in of itself, but she doesn't have these skills. She doesn't know how to do this. And so she's gone over the horizon of control. So what did I do? I pulled a Mr. Rogers. I grabbed one of her stuffed animals and held it behind. Uh, I stood behind a threshold of a door and held the stuffed animal out and started talking as the stuffed animal to her. And just over the course of three, four minutes, five minutes, she started to calm down. And it's just those ways. And again, I can pat myself in the back in the moment, knowing at the same time, I'm not sharing all the instances where my frustration didn't help me see right. the the kind, good Christ moment to be afforded there. Yeah. Uh, but it is those little things. It is those ways we humanize someone else, even when those people are, are frustrating as heck kids. Um, whom I love deeply. If you ever listen to this, um, uh, <laughs> hey, I, man, I, brother. <laughs> as as kind of a final, um, it, it's it's less a, a tentpole topic. Though I, I guess I'm second guessing myself even in saying that out loud. But something that I've noticed in your work of late, uh, and by your work I mean because I do read, you know, uh, not not every blog post, uh, but. Uh, read enough to get a sense for kind of where your spirit's at, which might be where your 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 work, your vocation is taking you. And something I have found interesting in recent years and a growing, I would say, problem is the American Christian world's uh, acceptance of, and I alluded this a minute ago, a non-democratic form government a non-representative form of government and and it feels weird to cite this subject as something that christians should concern themselves with not as in we shouldn't be aware or mildly mindful but to to that this could somehow be an expression of faithful living in the world today and i'm going to quote you here so that if anyone throws things uh it's at you in this instance and not me i get enough of those but you 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 posted a video a while back, and I'll, I'll inquire maybe what happened to it because I can't find it right now. But uh, the video was titled was from a lecture you did, and I didn't get a chance to watch it, but I did write this title down because I was like, <laughs> "There goes old Gushy again, <laughs> yeah. provocateur, professional." Uh -huh. um, and it was defending democracy from its Christian enemies. And Dad Gummit, there's a world where I, you know. We, we should work to to not incite and provoke uh, and, and, and use and irresponsibly use rhetoric. And so I recognize a world for that. But I want you to expound on that. Uh, that may lead into a conversation of what you're working on, but also maybe as a prelude, like why? Why should we care? Why should Christians of conscience care what form of government is at work in the society they're in? Um, the, the title was of my inaugural address at the Free University of Amsterdam, where I now have a professorship. Um, and they allowed that video to, to live for about 24 hours online, and then mm. it went offline. <clears throat> but I have drafted a book. My next book will be out with Erdman's, I guess, next year uh, on that theme. And right now I'm in the final revisions of that book. It's been really, really interesting. What motivated it was evidence of conservative Christians of all types flirting with autocratic or authoritarian governments 
all over the world. I have case studies from Russia, Poland, Hungary, Brazil, and the US, as well as older case studies from France and Germany. By the way, your audience is the first one who's getting a preview of this book. Yes. Um, and I dig around in political theory, and I acknowledge that Christians can be faithful to Jesus in all different kinds of political systems. And the Bible can easily be read to support monarchy and oligarchy and dictatorship. Not so much that, I guess, but democracy hadn't even developed. Um, well, it, and the Greeks had a run at it, but it was not a, a factor in the, in the Bible. So democracy, as we understand it in the modern world, really gradually develops. And it took a while for Christians to develop a kind of a Christian version of democratic theory. But I, I make a case in the book for why Christians should support democracy. It has to do with the, the separation of powers and the check of sinful, tyrannical, and dominating power that we need because human beings are sinners. Democracy best responds both, as Reinhold Niebuhr said, basically, in a paraphrase, democracy responds both to the potential and to the sinfulness of human beings. <laughs> we have sufficient potential to manage democracy, but we also have sufficient sinfulness that we need democracy to keep us from tyranny and from from tyrants taking control and uh, doing harm. If we would ever want to be blasé about democracy, I would point to what it's like to live in Russia or China or Iran or North Korea, where there is not rule of law, um, there is not human rights, there is not uh, a chance to have a voice and you can end up in jail just because the ruler has decided you need to be there. And you can be there as long as he declares, and they can do whatever they want to you when, when you're there. If that is fine with you, listener, then I wonder uh, what universe you're living in. Democracy, at its best, organizes human society so that the things that need to get done in governance can get done, but that the rights and freedoms of people are protected. So the book offers a defense of democracy in Christian terms, as well as plenty of warnings and case studies of Christians being inclined to move away from democracy. In the US, I think Trump has managed to uh, seduce a significant number of Christians towards supporting a weakening of democracy. And there are people who are far more scary than Trump in terms of explicit calls to abandon democracy in favor of some kind of Christian authoritarian regime, a Christian Caesar a Christian uh, Fuhrer who will tell us all how to live. Um, and authoritarianism does not go very well. People end up dead and justice ends up being subverted on a daily basis. So, but there are reasons why Christians are attracted to it, including some of the authoritarianism in a lot of our own churches. Many, many Christians live in a kind of authoritarian environment. Their families are authoritarian patriarchies. Their churches are authoritarian patriarchies. They might like to have an authoritarian patriarch as, as director or ruler of the state as well. And that is a tendency that, that we can see a lot of places around the world. So maybe I'll leave it there, but democracy is worthy of a robust Christian defense. And that's what I try to offer in this book, which probably will be called Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. 
Well, I love I love a bold uh, bold phrasing, and uh, that delivers for sure. So <laughs> I will be one of your first readers of this text. Um, uh, I think, yeah, I think it'll get some attention. Uh, anyway, <laughs> you know, it actually comes it comes out of a place of hurt for me. I love this country. Um, I grew up in the shadow of Washington D.C. My father worked for the government. My father-in-law worked for for the government. Seemingly, all my friends' parents worked for the federal government. I knew people who were in Congress. The gutting or challenging of our democracy and what happened on January 6th with a lot of Christians in that crowd hurts me personally. I care enough. I kind of wish I didn't care this much, but I do. Well, (laughs) I feel like I say that in my head every day. I kind of stop caring so much, Nathan. No, that's just kind of part of it. But, you know, it's it's funny because it won't come as utter surprise, I suppose, that you know, it's a semi-routine conversation, however serious on uh, it is on a given day, uh, it, it's a sliding scale, but of like, <clears throat> so we stay in here or not? And I may be misassigning this, and I can't remember where it was. It might have been a Christian Wyman book, but whoever, wherever the book, what, whatever the book was, they were referencing Bonhoeffer. And so th- there's a multiple layers of probable misparaphrasing about to happen but mm-hmm. to my recollection citing of bonhoeffer it was he couldn't um he didn't want to be present for his country's renewal if he wasn't present for its destruction and yeah he said it was when he went back to germany in 1939 july um when he was in the u.s and had the chance to stay there but okay. Um, He was at Union Seminary in New York, um, but he wrote a letter to Reinhold Niebuhr in which he said um, that basically I I won't have a right to be part of the reconstruction of my people after this nightmare is over if I don't go back and be a part of the battle right now. I listeners, I did not plan that. I had no idea you would be able to offer explicit context for the quote I was butchering, but I love that that just happened. That is awesome. Um, but no, I mean, I, you know, I consider that his finest moment in a lot of ways, because if you had a chance to get out of Germany in the summer of 1939, and if you knew that your life was going to be at risk, if you went back, people didn't, people did not stay. I mean, all kinds of very respectable people left Germany and never came back, but he went back. He went back into the conspiracy against Hitler and he went back knowing he would probably not live through the war. I admired that about him. And that's how I feel about this country. I can't imagine leaving because I love this country precisely as a Christian. I believe God has placed me here, but I am broken over a lot of what is happening here. And I'm trying to make my contribution in a lot of ways, including by writing this new book. Well, I am I am thankful for it. If if no one else listening is, I am thankful for that offering and that perspective. And man, I, I know as as in January, so to now my heart and spirit are stirred by our time, and I'm greatly appreciative, Dr. Gushy, of you sharing your time, your insights, your wisdom with us here, and look forward to more of these chats in the future. Um do me a final favor, uh, 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 sell yourself a little bit, remind us where listeners can find your uh, work online. The place to start is at davidpgushy.com. Um, davidpgushy.com. It's a nice website. It's kept updated. 
You can also sign up for a newsletter that usually goes out once or twice a month for, for those who sign up for it. We have about, I think it's 850 subscribers now and it's awesome. growing. Um, and uh, that has links to all my books, you know, sermons, videos, it's, you know, blogs. It's pretty much a one-stop place. My, uh, my normal blog outlet is Baptist News Global. So people can check me out at baptistnews.com, I believe, as well. But the website is a good place to start. Awesome. Thank you so much. Sincerely. Um, listeners, uh, uh, I hope you have enjoyed this. I know I have. We will, uh, whenever this falls on the release schedule, uh, thereafter return to your regularly scheduled fogginess. And just a, a reminder for you that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation, never the end of the conversation, but it is in that spirit that we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. Thank you, Dr. Gushy. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, I love these very substantive conversations and um, uh, I look forward to the next one. Good. I, my, my concern occasionally is that you walk away thinking, good Lord, that Nathan, he really needs a therapist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which might never, be true. I never have thought that once, but well, we, we, we all need therapists. So yes, go. have a wonderful day, sir, and we'll see you next you time. Too. Okay, take care. Uh-huh. Bye.